I just think there's going to be a lot of flexibility and that flexibility is going to be needed because big questions about whether we'll have an effective vaccine in time to actually be doing the redistricting. Since 1989, there have been 2,000, this is for serious felonies, there have been 2,449 exonerations in the United States of America. That's Laura Powell, former chair of the Washington State Redistricting Commission and former Washington State Senator and Superior Court Judge Mike Heavey. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. There are 49 legislative and 10 congressional districts in Washington state. How are the district lines drawn up and who makes those decisions? You know, there's a lot of acrimony in politics today. I'm not telling you anything that you don't know. But the state of Washington does a lot of things right when it comes to developing a system that is fair. And many states do not. I will be talking with Laura Powell, who chaired the redistricting commission almost 10 years ago, how the process works. If we think that we need police reform, while we're at it, we may want to take a look at how people are falsely accused of crimes they didn't commit and are in prison. To shine a light on this travesty, former Superior Court Judge Mike Heavey established a nonprofit organization in 2013 called Judges for Justice, and he will talk about that today. Back with Laura Powell in just a moment. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. Washington State Redistricting Commission is my guest. I met Laura in the president's box at a Washington State University football game last fall. Laura is also a current member of the Washington State University Board of Regents. I really didn't know a lot about redistricting in this state. Who made these decisions? I was curious to find out how are the districts drawn up and who does that? I found it very fascinating to talk with Laura. I hope you do too. You grew up in the East Coast, as I recall, and you went to the school at the University of Maryland, and then you came out to the state of Washington. What brought you out here? I was recruited to head up the Pacific Northwest National Lab in North Richland. I have a PhD in chemistry, and I re- worked for the federal government for many years and actually took an early retirement at the age of 49, and then started a consulting business, and then... I saw an announcement by a headhunter for the uh, Pacific Northwest National Lab job, and I thought, oh, well, I don't really want to move out of state, but I'll test my marketability. (laughs) Next thing I know, I'm out in the Pacific Northwest. (laughs) But, you know, um, my family and I just love it out here. And you couldn't get me to move back to Maryland, and I'd never lived outside of the state of Maryland in my life. I was born, raised, and even went to the University of Maryland undergrad and grad school. So, 
Um, I just we just love the the Northwest, and we actually and we love the Tri Cities. It's a it's a wonderful, caring community. Good to hear. I mean, uh, Tri Cities is a very special place, and historically, it's uh, amazing of all the things that Tri Cities has been involved with over the years. I find it interesting, though, your path came from a science background, and then you transitioned into becoming the chair of the Washington State Redistricting Commission. How did that come about? That was totally unexpected. I got a call in probably, I think it was probably December of 2010, you know, just the end of the, uh, just before the commission got started. I was asked is, if that was something that I'd consider. And I think the reason I was asked was, oh, I was, I was sort of a known quantity, you know, from being the head of Pacific Northwest National Lab. And then I headed up the Life Sciences Discovery Fund and had been involved in getting that whole thing started. And also people knew, some people knew that I was very nonpartisan. So anyway, I said, oh, I took a look at it, gave it some thought. And I thought, well, this might be interesting, not something I would ever have considered myself doing. And then there's a process where the the four voting commissioners actually decide on who will be the chair. And so I interviewed with each one of them and and was selected the chair. But it was um you know it was it was a lot of it was actually a lot of hard work and a lot of travel for me living in eastern Washington, but I'm so glad I did it. It was a, a remarkable experience. Well, it's really an honor to be placed in a position of like that, of, of trust. And um, it certainly glad, is. Yeah, glad to hear what you said, that you were selected because you were nonpartisan, and that's a great start. And I feel proud of our state that we are at least endeavoring to achieve that as best we can. We may fall short sometimes, but we are really trying to do that. And that's what I've always uh, loved about living in the state of Washington because a lot of states don't do it like this. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. And in fact, I think there are only like 20 or 21 states that even now have um, do redistricting by commission. And, and it's it, in the states that do it by the, through in the legislature, it is often very, very contentious. And actually, coming from Maryland, um, <laughs> Maryland is 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 one of the leaders in contentiousness <laughs> and it's highly very highly partisan you know the whole term gerrymandering goes back to the early 1800s when massachusetts governor albert gary um, approved a law that created a very odd looking legislative districts in the state and one district appeared to be roughly the shape of a salamander so that's where the term gerrymandering came from well i, I saw i was uh, there was an article put out recently about gerrymandering and talked about some of the states. Well, Maryland's third district was one of the ones highlighted. That's the district that I used to live in. And it was described by one federal judge as, quote, a broken winged pterodactyl lying prostrate across the state. <laughs> and indeed, <laughs> and that's not a bad description. Um, actually, post uh, redistricting, uh, in 20, you know, in 2011, uh, 2012, I um, actually went around giving some some t- informational talks across the state, and I always used as my example of gerrymandering Maryland's third congressional district. It's hard to visualize exactly what that looks like, but uh, it's radio. But uh, I'd like to see a drawing of that 
district, how it really turned out. Did you find the process and the four people involved with this to be cooperative, or did it get contentious at times, and how did that work out? Well, I found them to be very cooperative. All four of them were really excellent, and I and I very much enjoyed working with them and respected them. There were probably a few, a little bit contentious times, but I, I feel like the process worked out very well. The methodology of how you approach this, when you look at the districts, I mean, there's 49 legislative districts and 10 congressional districts, correct? Yes. When you looked in 2001, how much did it vary with the 2011 map that you adopted or recommended to the legislature? Well, in the congressional, it was huge (laughs) because we got an extra seat. So when you get an extra congressional representative, we had nine prior to that. So all of a sudden we added the 10th, which meant that every single one of those nine were were overpopulated. And so we had to do a major restructuring. We really looked carefully at population and there were areas and clusters where it really made sense for districts to have a majority of minority as opposed to um, white non-Hispanic areas. And uh, we had, there was actually um, one congressional, the ninth congressional, turned out to be a majority-minority district, and then there were four legislative majority-minority districts, the 11th, 15th, 33rd, and 37th. I don't, re- I don't recall on the one you, you mentioned. Um, it, it was, was like eastern King County, Redmond area, and then it stretched over to eastern Washington like in Ellensburg or something. Oh, yeah. That okay. That's, I, I could be talking about something entirely different, so I'm not sure. I'm just doing that from well, memory, and that's not a good thing. What I'm remembering is that we had, so there were people who were concerned about whether bridging between the east and the west really resulted in the fairness that they wanted. And there really are uh, a lot of criteria that you have to look at when you're doing districts. The, the law requires that the population, they need to be contiguous, convenient, and compact. And then the number of, of counties and municipalities, the divisions of those need to be as small as possible. The two sides, because eastern and western Washington are so different, you know, in many ways. The cascade know, curtain. Politically, urban versus, uh, you know, rural, et cetera. The 2021 redistricting commission is coming up uh, pretty soon. Uh, How do you see that working? I just think there's going to be a lot of flexibility, and that flexibility is going to be needed because big questions about whether we'll have an effective vaccine in time to actually be doing the redistricting. Didn't even think about that. Okay, that's a very good point. So it's going to be a a challenge. One thing um, associated with this, I just want to make sure people know, when the redistricting commission is set up, it's in typically in January of the year ending in one, so a year after the census. It sunsets in a year and a half. But unlike so many other boards and commissions, it does indeed sunset. <laughs> so, which actually is kind of refreshing. Uh, yeah, I think a but, lot of people uh, would like to follow that model. <laughs> I mean, seriously. I, I mean, know, but yeah. and but it, but you know, it 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 worked, and I like I said it. It, it was challenging for me because I had to travel across the state a lot. It was it was a truly wonderful experience. And, you know, the other thing I'll just close by saying to you is that when I said earlier, when you don't read about things a lot, that means it's going pretty well. And, and, and maybe it's a good thing that both sides are not entirely happy with the results. Again, that's a good thing. 
So you did your job because if you didn't, we'd be reading about it still or many years afterwards and all the controversy that you mentioned in Maryland where you uh, grew up and, and spent some time. So that's what that's kind of the measure I have many times about how good someone does a job. Well, thank you very much for that. And and I, you know, I really believe that although it followed years of contentiousness, when Washington State decided to put this five-member commission into practice and the citizens voted for it as a constitutional amendment, I think that they put together probably the best plan for a commission in the nation. And I'm sure there's some other ones that are very similar but I believe that this one works, and it's so much better than the contentiousness that takes place in the legislatures. But even more than that, it's so important for the people of our state to know that while it may not be perfect, that we have an excellent redistricting process, and the plan works very effectively so that they can feel comfortable about their votes and the people who are representing them. It all comes down to trust, and I do believe the citizens of the state of Washington trust this process. Well, thank you for that. My thanks to Laura Powell, former director of the Washington State Redistricting Commission. Now, we referred to four members of the commission, and I didn't mention that throughout the interview, so I'll do that right now. There were two Republicans and two Democrats. The two Republicans, let's start with Slade Gordon. He's the former U.S. Senator and former Attorney General from Washington State. Tom Huff, the founding chair of the Washington State Retail Association. The two Democratic representatives, Tim Cease. He is the former deputy mayor of Seattle under Mayor Greg Nichols. And then there was Dean Foster, chief of staff of former Governor Booth Gardner. Are you thinking about self-employment? Visit Amazon or order a book called Pre-Flight Checklist. Is self-employment for you? Pre-Flight addresses eight myths surrounding self-employment and includes a self-employment quiz. The higher you score, the higher your prospects for success. Visit Amazon Books and input Pre-Flight Checklist. That's Pre-Flight Checklist. Amber Lillystrom, founder of a program called Mastermind that is directed primarily towards women to help them achieve their goals, has joined us. I went on Google and looked up Amber and was very interested in her background and what she has achieved. She may not like this characterization, but uh, I think in many ways you sum up Amber by saying that she is the female version of Tony Robbins. Matter of fact, she refers to him later in the interview. But first, Her motto is soul fuel for life and business. I asked her to define that. It means simply to connect to the deepest part of yourself, your your dreams, your desires, the sort of golden thread that's been pulling you forth on your journey in your life, those little whispers when maybe something isn't quite working in a career or relationship or whatever, and just really tapping into that deeper knowing and weaving that into your career path and having the courage to make the change and to take the inspired action to lead you down a path that's going to be of greater 
greater service to the world. And how did that journey happen for you? So I was working in collegiate athletics for a decade, and I absolutely loved my career. I was working at my alma mater, the University of New Hampshire. I was the associate athletic director for marketing and strategic initiatives there and was involved in all kinds of things on campus and obviously in our athletic department and actually with an organization uh, that really connected the professional development of all professional um, collegiate athletic administrators in, in the nation. And so I had a very you know significant role in the industry and I loved what I was doing. And then I became a mom. And um, for anyone who is a parent, you can certainly understand that uh, life changes dramatically. And I knew very quickly that I did not want to be away from my daughter, uh, the amount of time that my job was going to require me to be. And also I had had this deep knowing that speaking and writing and coaching and teaching uh, on a deeper level was something I really wanted to step into. So it was a great opportunity for me to do soul searching on maternity leave. It was the first time in my life I actually stopped working So it took some time, but eight months after uh, my daughter was born, I launched my business, uh, brand strategy, brand coaching, business coaching, and helping female entrepreneurs to really bring more of who they are into their lives and into their businesses and careers. I hear people sometimes say, well, you know, business is business. And sometimes I think that's code for, well, I have a life at home. I'm a loving father or a loving mother, and I love my kids. But when you go to work, you can be ruthless, you can not be upfront, and then you come home and you're a loving father or a mother again. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I mean, integrity is, is absolutely one of my, my top core values, is paramount to me. And so I want to operate in my life across the board in total integrity. And I mean, I, I just don't think there's any other way to do it. And, and the truth is, is I've crafted a business that is re- it's me. I mean, I'm a personal brand and... If you go on my Instagram, you're going to see my family. You're going to see, you know, just me living at my house here on the lake. Um, I'm sitting in my office right now at home, and my husband now works in the company with me. He's here, too. My daughter's at preschool down the street. I can't really separate it. It's all one, and it's, it's ultimately what I really wanted to create. In my last book, I talked about Is Self-Employment for You? And the subtitle was basically, Anyone Can Start a Business, But Only a Few Can Sustain a Business. How do you sustain your business? I don't think there's any other option. You know, I, I've been so called to this work and to, to share myself in this particular way and to share my passion and what I uh, have been guided to on my journey. So I, there's no fear. There, I'm not sitting in the seat saying, oh, man, I hope that we survive. I hope we, you know, I just I see it as an opportunity to continue, continue to expand. And I mean that from a business perspective, but also a personal development perspective. I'm constantly, constantly working on trying to uh, be a better human, to be more compassionate. Why do you think most businesses do fail? I think one, it's that they try to do it the way someone else is doing it. And they, they literally try to rinse and repeat a formula for someone else's brand success. And the reason that doesn't work is because you can't be anyone other than you. And when, and what lives beneath that is a lack of confidence and a lack of self-belief. And I think ultimately culturally in our country and worldwide, we have a self, you know, appreciation problem. I'm going to use the word self-love, but that might be a little too, you know, 
fluffy for your audience. <laughs> so, but it's a, it's really about like self-confidence and really stepping into what it is you want to do without looking over your shoulder and saying, is this right? Should I be doing this? It's like, you think about the people who are the most successful. They're the ones who just, they're kind of, you think they're crazy and they just go for it because they're, they're passionate and they're excited and they know that they can make a big impact. Who is a great mentor of yours or mentors? I've been a huge fan and student of Tony Robbins, and I've learned from him over, I don't know, I would say probably the last decade. I've gone to a few of his events, and more than what he's saying, you know, he says incredible things, and but it's just the way that he approaches life with the energy, and that as you can see, he's just, he's just grown so much. I mean, he's been in business for like almost 40 years, and so he's someone that has really put a huge stamp on the whole personal development field and created what he's created. Excellent. And uh, final question. You say a lot about uh, you help people get out of their way. Could you define that further? I help people get out of their own way, get out of that, that pattern of indecision and uncertainty, because you can't go anywhere with that. You, you're just going to be stuck trying to figure out what it is, what, what's next, essentially. And you could spend a lifetime doing that. And so really, I, I believe that uh, my work is really about holding up a mirror to people to show them what's really there and to show them what's possible and to help them connect into the part of themselves that knows that they're ready to take the next step, but has just been a little bit too scared. And that's the magic of having a mentor. That's the magic of having somebody who's gone down the path already and has achieved the success that you desire. That's Amber Lillystrom. Visit amberlillystrom.com to find out more about her and her services. You can also listen to her podcast on iTunes. And that's Amber, L-I-L-Y-E-S-T-R-O-M.com. AmberLillystrom.com. The University of Michigan Law School keeps a website named the National Registry of Exonerations. Since 1989, there have been 2,000, this is for serious felonies, there have been 2,449 exonerations in the United States of America. 117 of these men were on, had been on death row, but they're now out uh, walking around a judge agreeing that they are innocent. The United States has 3,143 counties or county equivalents. Each one has their own elected prosecutor. When a county has a wrongful conviction in the United States of America, the prosecutor is not particularly concerned with how we're going to prevent wrongful convictions in the future. Canada, on the other hand, is one federal system of prosecution. And in the 1990s, they had three egregious wrongful convictions. Uh, they decided we're going to study those to determine how we can prevent wrongful convictions in the future. The Canadian prosecutors issued their report in 2004. A major finding conclusion was, quote, a leading cause of wrongful convictions in Canada and in other countries is tunnel vision and its perverse byproduct of noble cause corruption. 
there are deep subconscious psychological drivers behind wrongful convictions. And for us, it's often, or in our cases, it always starts with a shocking crime. A shocking crime is deeply emotional to us all. It turns our stomach, it generates fear within us. When a shocking crime goes unsolved, pressure mounts on the police and prosecutors. The community is in fear and demands justice. Find this deviant killer. The pressure on the police leads to tunnel vision. This in turn leads to the perverse byproduct of noble cause corruption. This is what we call, Judges for Justice calls, the wrongful conviction climate. That's former state senator and retired King County Superior Court Judge Mike Hebe addressing another staggering injustice in this country, and that is the wrongful convictions of numerous people. Bottom line, there are a lot of people in jail who should not be there. In 2013, Mike Heavey helped form an organization called Judges for Justice that identifies and exonerates people who have been wrongfully convicted. Visit www.judgesforjustice.org to find out more about the activities of the Judges for Justice organization. And also, you can find out about a current case that he's been working on for a number of years, and that is a case that originates in Hawaii, Who Killed Dana Ireland? That's judgesforjustice.org. On October 4th, 1957, the American space program began. That's the day the Soviet Union launched a rocket into space called Sputnik. For 21 nights, the Sputnik satellite was visible to millions of people as it circled the globe. The exultation quickly turned into anxiety. If this rocket could carry a satellite, could it also carry nuclear weapons? Welcome to the arms race and space race. The U.S. immediately created NASA. Over 400,000 individuals and 20,000 American companies participated in the space program, contributing immensely to our high standard of living that we enjoy today. I'm Paul Casey with this edition of Time Traveler from VoicesOfExperience.com. That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. Thank you to Laura Powell, Mike Heavey, and Amber Lillystrom for sharing their wisdom and experience with us today. Over the next couple of weeks, I will be airing a conversation I had with an African-American man who lost his son due to a sting operation that went wrong, terribly wrong. He received a financial settlement and an apology from King County But it's not only the financial resolution he was after. Part of the settlement includes installation of body cams and dash cams in King County police cars. Also joining us will be a very respected former King County police officer. The goal of our discussion is to talk about solutions. If you would like to listen to any previous Voices of Experience show, just Google KKNW, then click on to Podcasts. A page will appear with all the radio shows that air on KKNW. Go to the very bottom of the page and then click on to Voices of Experience and you're there. A very timely quote of the week. Nearly all men can stand adversity, 
But if you want to test a man's true character, give him power. That's Abraham Lincoln. A reminder that Voices of Experience airs Tuesday afternoons at 4.30 p.m. and Wednesday mornings at 8 a.m. Have a great rest of the week.